BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. You know, it, it's funny. These are kind of weird, and I, I guess if you you know if you generally support Democrats, it's a it's a it's a harrowing time, right? I mean, you know, both both in the political world, you know, Biden is Biden's very unpopular, and uh, you've in in the sort of in our in our daily lives, we're just coming off this sort of flash flood of Omicron. And that is both a huge bummer for all of us as just people living through this very strange time. But it's also, it's not good for anybody in political power, right? You know, we kind of, it, it's funny when, um, when Biden became president, there was this one school of thought that kind of like, you know, who could be luckier than this guy? You know, we had this terrible thing happen, but he's coming in for the rebound, you know, we got the vac- vaccines coming online, everything, you know, he's, he's, he's going to get all the gravy, right? Well, clearly it has not turned out that way. And I don't want to, um, there's a lot of different drivers of that. Uh, but certainly one humongous driver is the fact that everything still kind of sucks. And when you're in charge and everything sucks, you're going to pay a big price for that, even if you're not really responsible for it. And again, you know, no one forces anybody to be president. It's not about making excuses, but you know we're still living through this uh, uh, pandemic. Now, I say that because you know there's this kind of I think there's a cloud over a lot of people. It's there's a kind of a feeling of drift, right? There's a lot of lot of disappointments over the second half of last year politically, but there were things happening, right? You had this kind of Groundhog Day thing with uh, Mansion and Cinema and the Build Back Better and the Biff and all these kind of things and and it was exhausting but but there were things happening and now we're kind of what's happening you know is anything going to happen legislatively uh, that is really tied to the Biden agenda so I've been thinking about that and experiencing that and I, I assume probably many of you have too and. I think there is this general sense that uh, the January 6th committee folks are kind of, you know, doing the Lord's work, uh, really important, but at some level, kind of none of it matters because we live in this polarized time and Trump owns the Republican Party. So it's great to have it, you know, it's great to set the record straight, kind of get all the facts out there, but but not like it's going to make any difference in, in a political sense. But I saw something this morning that kind of crystallized something that 
I've been thinking recently that that points in another direction. And that is, you know, it's kind of one of these ridiculous new blowups in the relationship between Donald Trump and Lindsey Graham, which is which is this kind of, I don't know, sort of like a Rosencrantz and Guildenstern sort of comic relief aspect to the Trump years with this little, you know, even though uh, Trump is the is is the main protagonist of, you know, just ridiculous stuff and their little fights and, and, and Graham's toadying and stuff like that. But in the last couple of days, you know, Trump uh, I, I had a rally, I believe in Texas, where he basically said, you know, in his roundabout kind of ungrammatical way, like, hey, I'm going to I'm going to pardon all these guys, insurrectionist guys when I when I if and when I become president again. And Graham was uh, among a number of people who basically said, oh, you know, I can't support that. And now Trump is back to saying that Graham is a rhino, Republican in name only, not a loyalist, all, all that kind of stuff. And what that made me think of is that Setting aside just the importance of of the investigation itself, you know, apart from its political implications, it actually is making a difference. There actually is something going on there. And that is basically that Donald Trump has made the entirety of his politics at the moment policing Republican responses to that investigation and Republican opinions, statements about the insurrection. He needs everybody now to be explicitly pro-insurrection. Whereas most Republicans want to say, you know, uh, you know, it was really, it was, it was unfortunate. You know, maybe I understand where those guys were coming from, but they shouldn't have done that. But it's in the past. We're moving on, blah, 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 blah. Fairly few Republicans want to say, yeah, it was awesome. And I hope that happens again. And these people are heroes. This isn't because you have sort of any any sort of anti-Trump thing in the Republican Party, but, you know, it's a little hard to justify. The president's mob stormed the building and, you know, Republicans say, well, they're not trying to overthrow the government. This is a riot, you know, kind of whatever. But even riots aren't great. And I think that what you see here is that Trump is continuing to divide Republicans to put Republicans in an awkward spot vis-a-vis a big chunk of the electorate. And this shouldn't surprise us uh, because in, in, in a lot of ways, this is why um, we have two Democratic senators from Georgia. I'm not taking away from them all they did over the course of the year in that campaign, but those were very close. And it you know you had the insurrection, you had Trump you know, attacking other Republicans, it, it, it probably paid a, played a role. So we're going to talk about this. We're going to talk about that issue of what is at the center of Trump's politics right now. And my sense is, is it is all backward looking and tied to his grievances. And again, this isn't a matter of like, people are moving away from Trumpism. And they're not even really moving away from Trump exactly. But it is all backwards looking. Um, so we're going to talk about that, and uh, before we do, we're going to get to get to a bunch of topics that uh, Kate and I are going to talk about. So you got hooked for hooked on six dollar iced oat lattes and five dollar nitro cold brews. It happens to the best of us, but a few months and a few hundred bucks later, you're ready to become your own barista. Making cold brew at home isn't rocket science, but it is messy. Not to mention the need for grinders, strainers, unitasker, unit brewing containers. I don't even know what some of these things are. If you want to make cold brew at home, the easy way, order a Grady's cold brew kit. It's a simple and space efficient way to, to make a week's worth of coffee without the mess. Ready to 
leave it a swirl, get 25% off at Grady'sColdBrew.com with promo code TPM. That's Grady'sColdBrew.com with promo code TPM. Okay, Kate Riga, what are we what are we talking about this week? I guess we'll start in our little Supreme Court corner. So you know, as all of our listeners definitely know by now, Stephen Breyer announced his intent to retire at the end of term, uh, giving President Biden his first chance to, you know, not shape the court. It's it's a 6-3 conservative slap, but to make his mark on it, I guess. And we've had, there are kind of a, diff, a bunch of different stories orbiting that general news. Perhaps one of the most dramatic of which is that yesterday we found out that Senator Ben Ray Lujan of New Mexico had had a stroke that he was hospitalized for. Um, you know, per his office, he's expected to make a full recovery and is already doing much better. It started last Thursday when he said uh, he'd been experiencing fatigue and dizziness and he checked himself into a hospital, was transferred to another hospital where they discovered he'd had a stroke. Um, this was news to the Senate Democratic Caucus, who also all seem to find out yesterday as well. A lot of them have since been in contact with him and, and his family and, you know, said things sound good, which is, you know, great and definitely the, the primary concern. And it's kind of impossible to transition to the political element of this without sounding like a ghoul. But it does really bring up, I think, the precariousness of the 50 seat majority, you know, quote unquote majority, not least because Lujan is 49. You know, that's a spring chicken in this uh, Senate where the median age is about 64. So also a spring chicken in terms of having a stroke. I mean, people have, you know, certainly people have strokes in their 40s, but that's pretty young. So it is it is surprising. Right. So basically, all the kind of leadership of the Democratic Party has said those who are willing to kind of engage with the question have said, we don't really expect this to throw off the confirmation timeline at all. I mean, at least because Biden is currently planning to name a nominee by the end of February. So, you know, it sounds like he's doing very well and that they don't expect their recovery to be very prolonged. So it probably won't really affect the process. But the way that this is kind of what this has made me think about is we talked last episode about if we thought that Mansion and Cinema would be problematic about you know this appointment. That even though they kind of had a history of basically rubber stamping all of Biden's judicial nominees, that there's a chance that you know these two who seem to really love being in the spotlight would see this as a, a horse of a different color. But their statements so far have kind of indicated that they're not they're not planning to take issue with the person based on her you know, her politics, how liberal she is. The concern that I kind of had living in the back of my head is, you know, if it's not going to be, it must be a bipartisan judge. I could see them doing something like process oriented. You know, we don't want this to go too fast. You know, we yelled at at Amy Coney Barrett's nomination for for moving too quickly. You know, we can't be hypocrites kind of thing. And we haven't heard anything from cinema on that score because, you know, she just doesn't talk that much. But Manchin is out there having said, you know, there. It'll take less time if it's someone who's already been vetted, if it's someone who's already been, you know, elevated to another high court kind of thing, you know, which seems to be talking about Katanji Brown Jackson, who's already been elevated to, you know, basically kind of the second highest court in the land. Um, So that doesn't so much seem to be a problem. But right now we're looking at a time frame of a nominee by the end of February. Durbin said yesterday they're hoping to get that confirmation kind of wrapped 40 days later. So that's the time frame we're looking at. What kind of strikes you, Josh, about the whole timing? Well, let me, let me ask a, a, a technical tool, two technical questions. During the pandemic, I mean, 
earlier in the pandemic, you know, we had this whole thing of remote voting, mm-hmm. right? And they and they made some rule changes to allow that. I'm even now I'm kind of forgetting whether that was just the House or the Senate. Is that relevant here? Is that still allowed where you can do remote voting? Just the House. Just the House. Mm-hmm. Was it always and it was all was it always just the House? I believe so. I only yeah, remember no, I, being I, in the House. And they just extended it in the House as well. Right. Okay. So it's so it's not obviously relevant. So the other question, and I know this is this has come up and and I have seen it dismissed as basically not an issue, but I'm curious if you've heard more about this. He there's no I don't think there's there's no constitutional thing as announcing your intent to resign. (laughs) So is is there's not an issue with approving the replacement while Breyer is still on the bench, I guess everybody kind of agrees that's just not a problem. Yeah, everything I've seen said that's on the up and up. Yeah. Okay. So, so yeah, those are just the two kind of technical questions. I mean, one thing we should mention here is I'm uh, pretty certain of this that the governor of New Mexico is a Democrat. So again, not to not to you know trivialize this uh, health crisis, but. If for whatever reason uh, there was, you know, a replacement had to be made, it would be another Democrat. And and again, I want to emphasize: I think that everything, everything we've seen about this suggests that it is it was a very minor event as strokes go. Obviously, any stroke is a major event, but like didn't lose consciousness, had some fatigue, had some dizziness, something like that. So I think, as Kate said, every reason to believe he's going to recover and be fine and so on and so forth. Um, But just to kind of clear up that point, you know, my sense is this is going to basically kind of just go through. And I would not be surprised if a few Republicans ended up voting to confirm. It's generally, I mean, it's funny, I, I wouldn't even, I don't think this is required, but it's generally seen as kind of poor form. Like, okay, you just approved this person for this other seat. Now you're going to not approve them for the you know Supreme Court. That's like hypocritical or something. But not really. If I were a senator and I was in this position, and a Republican president, uh, you know, nominated someone to, I, I'd apply a different standard. Supreme Court's different, you know. But in any case, that is usually a determining thing. I don't think. I don't think Republicans are going to approach this as you know, kind of a deep loyalty vote in the sense of like, you know, Republicans will never, lots of Republicans will never forgive Mitt Romney for voting to impeach Donald Trump on the first impeachment. It's not going to be that way. So, so I think it's going to, I think it's going to go through. Um, if, if Biden isn't even expected to announce his person until towards the end of February, I doubt it'll be a problem with Lujan being there for a vote. So I, I suspect it's, 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 you know, going to move ahead through. That's my sense as well. However, that has not stopped many of the Republican Party from being fairly horrible about just the notion of nominating a black woman before we even know who it's going to be. And, you know, the reactions have ranged. A big argument that a lot of them kind of fall into is this you know, this is affirmative action slash this is unfair to white people kind of thing, as if the court hasn't been dominated by white people since its uh, inception. But, you know, the argument about this kind of 
I'd say Roger Wicker has had the, the, the highest profile kind of argument so far. He said, uh, you know, this is a this is like a quota system compared to affirmative action. He was asked yesterday, you know, do you stand by these comments? Do you regret saying them? He said, I'm going to let the interview stand. So stands by them. Then you had Josh Hawley's yesterday, who it just really made me laugh. His argument was basically, oh, yeah, well, if he wants a black nominee so much, why hasn't he supported all the black nominees forever and ever? You know, mentioning Clarence Thomas and such, which that gotcha argument just that made me laugh. Yeah, I mean, these are these are silly arguments, even by the terms of I mean, making the affirmative action argument is, I think, an abhorrent argument in this context, but it's not a silly argument in the sense that that is a, a very known attack in our in our political culture, and it will have traction with a lot of people. Whereas, basically, Holly, there was also this, you know, uh, op-ed in the, in the post yesterday basically saying, oh, you want diversity? Well, there was this black woman who Bush wanted to nominate and you said you wouldn't support her. So, na 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 you know, just that's, but that's, that's silly. That's just, you know, moronic. But I do think they're, you know, they're clearly going in on unfair to whites, it's affirmative action, all with the implicit judgment that obviously the women who seem to be, you know, there's like a list of three or four uh, women who who seem to be, you know, kind of the top, you know, top possibilities that none of them are really qualified, that it's only, you know, it's a quota system that they're they're clearly not qualified. They are not all, all that kind of stuff. And, 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 you know, as you say, we don't know who he's going to nominate. So I can't I can't rule out that he would just pick some random person who, you know, who's totally, you know, doesn't make sense as as a nominee. But the people everybody is focusing on and, and which the White House has encouraged people to focus on are all extremely qualified. That's just kind of open and shut. I mean, again, with with the one example that we have just um, mentioned, she was just confirmed, I think, what, six months ago or something like that to the DC circuit, which is the top circuit in the country, you, you know, often like a launching ground for um, uh, Supreme Court nominees. I, I can't, I can't help but remind everybody that during the 2016 campaign, President Trump took a list, a specific list of, you know, I don't know what it was, 20, 30 people or something like that, prepared for him by the Federalist Society and said, I will only nominate from this list. I will not nominate anybody else. So, you know, and and frankly, I, I don't, I mean, it's sort of a problem that Trump never, Trump was more than happy to farm out these decisions to political groups that he thought could help him. And that's not great. But frankly, I don't think it's really a problem if a president said, hey, you know, here's the here's the ones I I would pick from. These are this is what you'll get from me. I don't think there's honestly I don't think there's any problem with that. But if it it does kind of explode this notion, the kind of like ah, oh, you know, it, it's sort of sort of like you know they have the thing when you know there's that whole uh, that whole thing when you advertise a job, but really it's already the person on staff who's it's already lined up, so it's all a fraud, right? They're trying to make it like that. Like you're supposed to just kind of start from ground zero. And go through the 350 million people who live in this country and find that one. You know, come on. The whole thing, it's, it's, it's just nonsensical. And I think um, the caliber of the arguments from Republicans even kind of led on to that. 
in that, like from the Hollies and stuff, you're like, okay, you're just trying to, you're not even really kind of trying to come up with much here. And, and the thing, and you can see the thing that they, that they really want to go with. And some are having, some are willing to go there. Some aren't yet, although I suspect more will. It's just to say in so many words, let's be honest, a black woman really isn't, there are no black women who really qualified for this. And, and so it's affirmative action and it's the party of black people and just make a kind of an openly racist argument. Yeah. I mean, and in that way, it is kind of a tidy extension of, you know, the narrative that's dominated Fox News. And that has been kind of the culture war of choice of recent days, which is, you know, the the book banning, the learning about racism is, you know, damaging to white children. It's It's the whole concept of even the kind of implicit acknowledgement by saying that Biden wants to choose a black woman, that implicit acknowledgement that, you know, the court has never had one and then that that's a problem and that that's indicative of kind of deeper societal problems is unacceptable. You know, in some way that's that's, you know, that's rigged, that's unfair to other people. It's it is of a piece with an argument that they've been kind of making louder and louder and more boldly and more boldly that any acknowledgement, even a tacit one of the systemic racism of our society is offensive to American patriotism and is propagated by people who, you know, who hate America and who don't think we're a great country. And obviously, I think that is completely, you know, ridiculous and and all the rest. But it's in some ways, I think that narrative, which has so successfully taken root in the Fox News world, has made it difficult for Democrats to craft an argument, which is something like, America is great because of the people who like fight back against these systemic injustices or because of, you know, the various civil rights movements we've had and that kind of thing. And I think it has made it a little bit difficult for Democrats to portray that fight in a positive way and instead has left them with the argument, all these things are bad. You know, all these things in our society are broken and unfair and harmful. And again, it's not that I don't think that's true, but I don't know if that's a great political message. You know, I mean, it's like we just came off this whole voting rights fight where everything was so dire and for good reason. I mean, things are very, very dangerous, but I think it's kind of contributing to the dragging down of Democrats morale that there's not been a very neat way of saying, here's all the stuff we have to fix but putting that in the wrapper of, you know, and fixing it is why we're great or, you know, this is a positive mission. This is a, a kind of communal push that we should, you know, we all proudly take on this fight. I think there's been a little bit of a lack of that, which is kind of infused everything Democrats are trying to do with this kind of despair that I right, think you, you right. mentioned at the top. Well, I, you know, I think I think. I think there are a few different things here. W- one is just the fact that you can't seem smart when you're losing, right? Yeah. <laughs> you know, th- that th- that everything, everything Democrats are doing right now is seen through the worst prism because they're unpopular. Now, you could say, well, they're unpopular because they're doing it so badly. Well, maybe, maybe. But sometimes you're unpopular because of things that are that are either beyond your control or not immediately, you know, blah, 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 blah. It, it's hard to seem smart when you're losing. And right now, Democrats are losing. I'm not saying they're going to lose, be losing at the end of the calendar year, but right now, they're, it's, it's not going well. And another part of that is that a one of the two major political parties has made both racial resentment 
and hostility towards reform, for lack of a better word, as the centerpiece of what they're doing, right? Okay. Democrats, I think, have some responsibility for this. It is not, at least to me, it, it, it is not complicated at all to have a story of America that puts liberationist reformism at the center of what it means to be American. That's certainly how, I, that's certainly my, the way I look at being an American and where, you know, where a lot of the greatest triumphs of America, of the American political tradition is democratization, is the civil rights movement, is, uh, you know, the, the liberationist impulse behind the civil war, all, the, all these kind of things. I think part of part of what is going on now, though, is that the conversation within the Democratic Party, which has many very positive elements to it, often forecloses that path on its own. It's, you know, it's America is fundamentally a racist society. Uh, America, you know, Slavery is the core story of America. Now, both of those things to me are true in a significant to a significant degree. But the way that conversation has developed within the left of the Democratic Party has foreclosed a lot of that. And that's that's a bit of a self-own, right? Now, reformism th- this is this is in the nature of reformism, right? Deep critiques of your own country, of your own actions are are inevitably always part of any kind of reformism. That's just that that is just you can't get up the you know get up the momentum if you're saying, man, we are we are first of all, we are awesome. <laughs> and let's be clear that we're awesome. But there's a few things we could work on. And here's one of them. You know, this this is just kind of in the nature of that's politics. That's life. That's how that's how social change happens. But I do think, again, some of that is coming from the dialogue, the discourse within the, within the Democratic Party, and that's that's just a, that's just a fact, and that's that's having an effect. I mean, and a fundamental question here is: Would we be having the same conversation if Democrats' voting rights push had succeeded? You know, if the reconciliation bill had succeeded to some degree, the the negative tenor is by virtue of the fact that these reform movements have failed and have failed at the hands of members of the party trying to do the reforming, which is why I think this nomination gives the White House a real life raft to kind of turn that around because, you know, and cinema and mansion have surprised us many times, but as things stand right now, it doesn't look like this is going to be yet another intra-democratic fight. You know, it's going to be a little piece of this reform movement that seems like it'll have the whole party united behind it. That'll probably give Democratic constituents something to be excited about, you know, a, a win uh, that that's sorely needed. So maybe that'll kind of be the narrative pivot that this retirement offers Democrats, you know, especially kind of as we get closer to the midterms. Yeah, no, I, I, I think that's right. I mean, and again, it's it's... It's hard to seem smart when you're losing. <laughs> that is just a reality of politics that people always forget. And uh, if you can have a win, that just puts some spring in your step. That's just that's just a reality. Um, so I think I think that's right. I mean, we'll see. You know, they still you know 
there are a lot of things that would be helpful for Democrats to be able to do this year, and and their ability to do them seems fairly constrained. So there's a lot of work to do, but I but I uh, but I agree with that. So the other kind of fun part of this that we just found out about is that Doug Jones, the former uh, senator from Alabama, is going to be the quote unquote Sherpa um, for whoever Biden's nominee is, a job that kind of entails, you know, introducing the nominee to senators and kind of guiding her just through the hearing process, preparing her. Usually it's a person who has very thorough knowledge of, you know, the Senate and the Senate Judiciary Committee's kind of inner workings. Um, Previous Sherpas have been John Kill for Brett Kavanaugh and um, Kelly Ayotte for Neil Gorsuch. Amy Coney Barrett didn't have one because of the compressed nature of her confirmation. Um, so, you know, I'm curious to hear what you think about Jones, who obviously has a kind of a very uh, impressive personal background as a, a prosecutor who, who successfully prosecuted two uh, KKK members responsible for the Birmingham bombings. But, you know, he was only in the chamber for three years. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's sort of, uh, you know, a bit of inspired pick, right? Uh, you know, just just because he's, you know, he's out of work, first of all. You know? <laughs> um, so he's available. And as you as you suggest, he has, despite being a white man, has some cred from the civil rights tradition, for lack of a better word, because of his prosecutorial work in 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 the past with the KKK and so forth. And I think there's, you know, uh, Democrats, and I mean in this case, you know, the mass of Democrats, they liked him. Right, he's just a popular guy. I think that one of the many—I mean, they liked him because he's—he's, he's, you know, he won a Senate seat from Alabama, which you know <laughs> speaks for itself. But I think they also uh, like him because, unlike a lot of people in that situation, he didn't—he didn't make votes chasing after notional moderates, and obviously he lost. And I think that I, I don't want to say it was always completely hopeless that he would that he would w- win re-election. It was certainly a long shot, and I think it was. Regardless, I think it was the right electoral decision to do that and just the right decision, right? So people like that. Um, I think there's a lot of people who kind of wish that he was the attorney general, right? Um, so there's that. So it's just a, it's a it's an inspired choice uh, kind of across the board, I think. And he's just, just yeah. a likable guy, right? Some of the, some senators, you kind of like, eh, I wouldn't want to hang out with that guy. But like Doug Jones, like, ah, nice guy. And it's funny, I'm sure his appeal has just grown so much for doing what you say, you know, not making life hard for the Democrats, even though his reelection was going to be well nigh impossible, kind of starkly against the backdrop of Cinema and Mansion making the party's life impossible. So I'm sure his stock has only gone up in his absence. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and, and his stock was, was pretty high to start right. with. Exactly. Okay. So now we're going to talk a little bit about this kind of burgeoning election reform movement happening. Um, it's been... A, a bipartisan group of senators, Susan Collins, pegged the number at 16 this week, though she did not give the party breakdown, which, as we know, is important because we've seen <laughs> I mean, some burgeoning important. bipartisan movements right. before. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. You know, probably the most kind of notable of those that actually, you know, went to the went to the floor and went to a vote and failed and everything is the January 6th, back when it was a commission, which ultimately got six Republican senators, which due to the filibuster is the same as having no Republican senators. Um, So I've been very kind of skeptical about this for a while, just because it feels like things I've heard before. This is not 
you know, for a while, this was not that different from how conversations about, you know, the For the People Act and then the Freedom to Vote Act were going, which was a lot of courting of Republicans and people saying, you know, a lot of Republicans are interested and blah, blah, blah. And it ended up zero Republicans were interested. Right, right, right. But the thing that kind of made me pay a bit more attention is they had a meeting um early this week, Monday night, I think, where the process seemed to be getting a little less amorphous and a little more formalized. You know, they came out with specific kind of subsections that they're going to work on, which are clarifying the Electoral Count Act, protecting election workers, uh, voting practices and rights, the Election Assistance Commission and presidential transitions. And then they've appointed a Democratic and Republican co-chair to each of those sub buckets to work on those different pieces. Um, the plan is kind of to work in your subgroups throughout the week and then to basically regroup on, on Friday or over the weekend and see where everyone is. So, you know, and on the one hand, it's hard to buy into just because of the, the main narrators here being Joe Manchin, which if anyone ever gave him the benefit of the doubt, that's been pretty exhausted by now. And Susan Collins, who's kind of another one who will put out these everyone's working together platitudes that, that comes to nothing. But then on the other hand, this is a more structured approach to reform than we've kind of seen from the the vague whispers so far. So what's your read on it? Well, I guess I'm sort of assuming that we're at least in the mix to get 10 Republican senators. And I only, I say that partly just kind of a gut sense, but also kind of like, otherwise, why are we even talking about it, right? So I'm kind of taking yeah. that as a, as a as an assumption for the sake of conversation. But I have assumed, based on what has been focused on, that it is largely, you know, this issue of the of the president, what is the presidential electors that, you know, the kind of the law that structures basically January 6th, mm-hmm. right? Like, like the vice president, you know, kind of accepts the votes and all that kind of stuff. And it seems like this is, you know, kind of, this is as much as Republicans are willing to kind of put their head above the parapet to basically say, okay, you know, the vice president actually cannot change the election outcome. Let's just be clear on that to kind of, and, and, you know, <laughs> as far as it goes, I guess that's great. But I mean, it doesn't, I've even, I I have even seen, and I'm not sure what I think about this exactly, that if anything, it only potentially hamstrings uh, Kamala Harris if there's I don't know if there's a situation where where some states are coming in with fraudulent, like who who knows, right? But in any case, that is not what we're talking about with election reform. I mean, reform, right? I mean, we're assuming that the vice president will not be changing election outcomes, right? I mean, that's that's kind of a, a pretty baseline assumption. And so, you know, maybe you could stitch some stuff up with the presidential transition. I mean, there's been there's been a push for a long time that our transitions last too long. Anyway, that's a, that's a pretty big thing. I mean, it used to be, I think it was May. I think originally, um, it's a small chance it was March, but I, th- I think it was May until FDR. And it was switched to January. Possibly it was, I I may have the month long wrong. It was much longer, kind of ridiculously long, like, you know, six months or something like that. And they, they pulled it back. But I guess whether this is meaningful in any real way is going to, is going to come out on, I think one of your buckets was, you know, kind of protecting voting practices, some, you know, which I guess would be, well, I don't know. I mean, do we know like what, what that's going to be? You know, if, if it turns out that it's like, you know, mandating uh, voter ID, that's not going to be great. 
Um, right. No, so. we basically know no details. The only reason we know these categories is because Manchin came out of the meeting and read them off a piece of paper. And then I think kind of instantly regretted doing so. And no other senator would talk about the specific subsections. But, you know, one thing Collins did say is someone asked, is there any chance that this legislative bundle will have pieces of the voting legislation that Democrats tried and failed to pass, you know, earlier or last month. Um, and she said, you know, our, our main goal here is to get 60 votes. I think that becomes much more difficult if we try to relitigate rejected legislation, essentially. So doesn't seem like this is going to be a forum for salvaged pieces of, yeah. you know, making voting easier. Yeah. And, and you know, of course not. Right. I mean, it's yeah, exactly it's, it's uh I mean, look, most of the things Republicans are highly committed to um, advancing and entrenching their political power with restrictions on restrictions on voting rights and uh, various mechanisms that allow gerrymandered Republican state legislatures to, if not just toss out the results of the of elections, intervene in them. That's the, that that's their strategy. So kind of like it's a little hard to know what possible basis of compromise there is because one side wants to make it harder to vote, the other side wants to make it easier to vote. I mean, how do you compromise? They have different objectives. So you know, right, yeah. I mean, I guess optimistic. I kind of. I kind of have a, you know, putting on my caring about the democracy hat. I see this as a potential bad thing just because it'll let Republicans point to something when people say, you know, you're actively working against the franchise to be like, no, 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 we backed this electoral reform bill. We care deeply about the democracy kind of thing. And then, you know, taking that off and putting on my punditry hat, I think it's potentially a good thing just to show some kind of productivity, you know, to give it's kind of the same as you said earlier about the the all the bad stuff that's happening, you know, whatever happens basically goes to the credit of the party that's in charge. So whether or not it's a bipartisan push, Democrats will get to claim credit for getting it through just because they happen to be the party in charge. And that could be some sort of, you know, low hanging, mild, hey, look, we did something else since that COVID relief bill back in March or whatever it was. Right, so right, right, those right, are kind right. of my initial feelings about it before we've seen it fleshed out or the details and anything like that. Yeah. I mean, the only thing I have at least seen in various discussions that there's some kind of, you know, consensus about is, you know, vice pre we got to make clear vice presidents can't overturn elections, which, you know, again, like, okay, okay, great. Like we can do that, but that's, <laughs> but that is, that is pretty meaningless. And, you know, it's funny. I actually Republic, well, I think John Eastman said this and some Republicans are saying this, but I've even seen some Democrats saying, well, I guess this means that they were right all along that now vice presidents do have the right to change. Like, no, no, it doesn't. I mean, like, like it's that, that's my only kind of slight, um, slight hesitation is that you get into kind of stupid conversations like that. And, you know, it kind of comes down to the reality, though. There are no legislative fixes to just declaring that you won the election when you didn't, right? If you're going to come up with this about the president can just change the result, um, vice president can just change the result, you can come up with a bunch of other things. You're not going to, you know, you're, you're not going to have the motivations 
and transgressive approach that we saw in 2020 continuing. But now the Trumps and Giuliani's and John Eastman say, well, got rid of that vice president thing. I guess we're going to have to go along with the actual votes. Oh, well, that's not how it works. Right. So we'll be keeping an eye on that as it kind of develops and we get more details. Um, But speaking of, you know, overthrowing the government, etc., you know, we kind of wanted to circle back to how Josh opened the show, talking about the the Trump Graham fight, but m- more intrinsically, just this this fact that Trump is so stuck on relitigating 2020, relitigating the mob. He and it's not a new thing from his personality. You know, this happens all the time. Whenever he's obsessed with something, whether it be Hillary Clinton or that weird stretch where he was so into water pressure and he couldn't stop talking about it. You know, whatever's on his mind, it's pretty easy to tell what it is. And right now it's, you know, it is last January and it is, you know, incorporating as part of the fealty he demands people to be pro mob, people to say he was right about the mob. Everyone else is wrong. How the mob members are treated is an extension of that. And that's kind of a I think a piece of we're seeing some pieces come out that are kind of, you know, Trump's grip on the party is slackening. And a lot of that, I think, has to do with the fact that there is a a lot of Republicans, even ones who like Trump, who don't want to talk about January 6th. You don't see that as a particularly bright, shining light for them. And he's so stuck on it, which I think is also having the other effect of elevating Ron DeSantis a little bit as a figure who is Trump in all but mob obsession. (laughs) Right. Well, and all and also uh, big lie obsession. I mean, he's down with the big lie, but that's clearly, I mean, I think, you know, the point I tried to make as clearly as I could in a post I did about this this morning is this isn't about like, oh, the old normal Republicans are coming back. These are all like hardcore Trumpers and they want to benefit from the big lie and they want to benefit from the insurrection. They have other things they want to do. They want to. They want to you. You know, exploit those things to do other things, right? Whereas with Trump, you know, I, I guess uh, there was an interview a week or so ago where he talked about the wall just because someone used the word wall, and he's so <laughs> addled that he said, "Oh yeah, wall. We got to build the wall." He doesn't talk about any kind of policy things anymore. And, and in a way, this actually goes back to early in his presidency. If you think about it, it goes, everything goes back to the Russia thing. For most of his presidency, Trump's real driving ambition goal was undermining the Russian investigation, punishing the people who did it, saying that it was the biggest witch hunt ever, being upset that it had it had, you know, spoiled the glory of his election victory in 2016. So in a sense, the sort of the backward lookingness started early in his presidency. I mean, really, if you think about it, what was his agenda in in the second half of his presidency or even the first half of his presidency? It was attacking the Russian investigation. And then it became, you know, attacking the people behind the Ukraine stuff. And, the, you know, and it has just become even more so, you know, and, and, and then the big lie replaced it. And it's all these kind of grievances. And again, most Republicans totally on board. Yep, you won and uh, blah, 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 blah. And we have to crack down on election, you know, on voting rights and stuff like that. 
you need to have something a little more forward looking too, right? What's the next terrible thing you're going to do, right? It's what have you, what terrible, what terrible thing have you done for me lately? And I think that is what, um, you know, that's what's kind of behind the DeSantis boomlet because he's totally down with Trump's agenda. He has entirely embraced, almost morphed into Trump, this, the kind of attacking the press and fake news and blah, 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 blah. But he's not still hung up on the 2020 election, which everybody knows Trump lost. I don't buy this whole idea that, that people really think that it was stolen. Maybe a few people. Most people don't. That's just kind of part of their identity now to say it was stolen. And so I think that what is relevant for our thoughts about politics now is that this is pretty divisive within the Republican Party. Elected Republicans, again, they're fine. They, you know, they don't want to hold anybody to account for January 6th. And they're happy to say, oh, yeah, you totally won. It was unfair, blah, 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 blah. But they don't want, they don't want to be talking about like pardoning those people. And they really don't want to be talking about you know, Chinese bamboo or whatever the other nonsense about how it was stolen and stuff like that. Cause it's, it's ridiculous. And, and it, it, a, it's, it's past people are done with that, but also it sounds crazy and it sounds awful. And, and so he is really, he is upping the ante with his own party, basically saying you have to be, exp you know, you can't just say it's, it's old news. Let's move on. Or you can't just say it's Antifa. You have to say it's awesome. And that's, that's, that is, is creating problems within the Republican Party, and it's clearly being driven forward by the stuff that the January 6th committee is, is bringing up. Because each thing, each thing they come up with, he needs to keep everyone on side. That in fact, it's awesome. You know, he wanted to right. seize the voting machines. Oh, yeah, the, absolutely, man. That's great. We have to see, always seize voting machines forever. You know, <laughs> he demands a lot, and it's a problem for them. Yeah, and he's just also just fundamentally incapable of letting any lapses in the fealty he's demanding go, which is kind of, you know, sparking a bit of a rift between him and DeSantis, which is manifested in COVID stuff, because Trump has been trying to occupy this weird gray space between being very, very against, you know, mandates and being doing the Fox News line on that, while also taking credit for the vaccine development. So he's that's put him in a hard place that has gotten him booed in a few events when he brings it up and tries to kind of brag about Operation Warp Speed. Um, and so at that interview that you mentioned, he was asked about, you know, people getting the booster. And he said something along the lines of, yes, they have, but, you know, they're being gutless politicians and not admitting it, which is a pretty clear jab at DeSantis, who refuses to say whether he got it or not. And who, when he got his initial doses of the vaccine, got it so in secret that his immediate staff didn't even know that he had gotten it. So that happened. And then DeSantis has been, you know, at a, a rally or some kind of event said, basically, I, I wish I'd been more, I'd uh, been louder in my opposition to any COVID restrictions earlier on, aka right, when Tr Trump was in charge of them. Yeah. And also kind of that Tony Fauci kind of took Trump in. Trump was too gullible. He was too, he was putty in Fauci's hand. So yeah, he's trying to get to the right. I'm not even sure. It's, it's hard to say this is to the right on COVID stuff because this is, this turns on axes that, that have right left valences to us now, but I'm not sure they would have 
in the past exactly, mm-hmm. right? So, um, yeah, I mean, and again, this is not, this is definitely not like, oh, Trump's done. He's not going it, to, it, it's just, it's creating friction and it's worth watching. Right, exactly. Okay, let's take a couple questions. Um, one from Henry says, is it possible that Kirsten Cinema is prepping a run for president? Um, is it plausible that she has the same kinds of people in her ear that led Mike Bloomberg to run? Which is, ugh, I just, I like when Mike Bloomberg comes up again, you know? It's something like I've almost purged from my memory. I can't believe that he just ran for president. It's just one of those, you know, quaint reminders <laughs> like him and um, who, who's the tall guy? Uh, what's it? Tom Steyer. Oh, Steyer. oh right, 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 right. He also well, runs. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, no, remember the, the Schultz guy, right? The Starbucks guy. Remember that? Oh, the whole thing? my God. That was like Not, a, honestly, like, also memory like hold. Me- memory hold. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think it is quite possible that there are people whispering in her ear that she is a presidential contender in the near term. In fact, when I was kind of doing sort of informal reporting on this a few months ago, that was something that came out again and again and again. She thinks she'll be president. That, you know, now it's a cliche. Every every senator thinks they're a potential president, blah, 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 blah. But something more direct, like as a near-term, you know, as a near-term plan. And I mean, to her benefit, she was a kind of a, a flack in the Green Party 20 years ago. And then suddenly she's the first senator from Arizona and a Democratic senator from Arizona in like 40 years now. I mean, you know, elected when they were elected. Um, so she's accomplished a lot, right? And and so you have to kind of uh, give her that credit. She may be, but I think even Mike Bloomberg is was a vastly more plausible presidential candidate than she is by I mean by almost by by just by light years, frankly. Americans like billionaires. I mean, yes, a lot of people say they hate billionaires, but just demonstrably they run, they win, you know, he had tons of money. And I think there was a there was a decent theory of his of his campaign, which obviously failed, which is relevant to, to bring up here. And that is that if uh, for people who really wanted Trump out, that if if Biden wasn't going to make it, and you thought Bernie couldn't beat Trump, then I think a lot of people would think, okay, I don't like I'm not crazy about Bloomberg. But he won't be crazy. He'll, you know, he 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 was relatively normal in New York. He even did a few, you know, uh, did a, a few good things. He's good on environment. So there was a logic to it, but it didn't work. And um, for a lot of obvious reasons, not the least of which is that is that Biden had a lot of strength that people didn't see. I think it is entirely po- plausible that people are saying that to her, but that's a complete fantasy. Well, and the other part. That is why I find her political calculus to be so enduringly baffling is that it's obvious she's trying to position herself, you know, as a centrist, as someone who's on the right wing of the Democratic Party and has crossover appeal. Okay, I think everyone can pretty much agree on that. But the way she goes about doing it is by dealing her party the most high profile, humiliating defeats on issues that Democratic constituents uniformly care a lot about. So she it's like she doesn't know how to pick battles that won't piss people off or that she purposely picks ones that'll make the base as angry as possible. You know, I was just thinking the other day back over the fact that the things she took out of the Build Back Better bill were 
lowering prescription drug costs, pretty much the issue that has the single most uniform dislike across parties in the whole country and refusing to tax the wealthy. So I don't know. Maybe she is planning a run. I don't know. She, she's just not bright, <laughs> frankly. And, I, I, and, I, and I'll just say that. I mean, her theory of what she's doing is it's it's what it's it's what you've said. I mean, she is hated by Democrats, hated. And as you say, we're in a we're not we're in a more politicized era than we were 20 years ago, even 10 years ago. If you are at all interested in politics and are anywhere from the center to the left, you know about Kirsten Cinema. You know this isn't like, oh, it's the inner workings of the Senate. No one knows. Everybody knows. And she has, as you say, the most high profile things for the least justification. There was a poll that when I wrote, last wrote about this a week or so ago, there was a poll that she's down to 8% favorability among Democrats in Arizona. 8%. 8%. That is like, that is not even just like 8% overall among your own party. Incumbents like never get below 75 of their own party. And her crossover appeal, she's also very unpopular among independents in the state. Her appeal is among hardcore Republicans who like that she's shafting her own party. And exactly. so it, it's it's the whole thing is just um the whole thing is just absurd. It would be it would be I'm not sure it'd be I don't know if it'd be better or worse, but it would be different if she if if you were looking at her and like, wow, master plan. I hate her for doing so well for herself. She's not. Her career's over. She's just the only one who doesn't realize it yet. Yeah. And I, I didn't want to let the cinema moment pass without sharing this anecdote that happened late last night in the Senate, which was she got mad about how long the vote process was taking. And, to, you know, to add some context, what most of the votes that the Senate's been doing are slate upon slate of judicial nominations. So that's basically what all this is. But she confronted uh, Schumer about it per a Bloomberg reporter and said, could we have some discipline in the votes ever? You're in charge. And then apparently he tried to mollify her later and she exclaimed fine before storming out of the Senate. And just to add a little note, there's something that would streamline the Senate voting process. And she just voted against it last week. So <laughs> I just can't. I I was at a loss for words that, you know, someone who just kind of stabbed her party's agenda in the heart on this very, very high profile stage has the gall to go to her party leader and say, you're in charge. Take the reins. Why are the votes taking so long? It's stunning to me. Stunning. Yeah, she, she's she's just a ridiculous person. Yep. Okay, let's take one more question. Um, this is from Mike, who says, are we seeing the transformation of Build Back Better from failed bill into 2022 campaign platform? As you've discussed previously, a general, we need more Democrats message is a tough sell, but something like we can have all the great things in Build Back Better if we have more Democrats seem like it could be a winning message. And he mentions he's starting to hear kind of snippets of this this kind of thinking from Warren, Durbin, even Biden. Do you think there's something to this? I think there probably is. Um, I think one of the problems with Build Back Better that Democrats have not been um, leveled with themselves enough about is that something can be popular and yet not popular at the same time. The things that are in there, generally speaking, are very popular. But 2021 has been a year where everybody's life is still turned upside down by COVID. 
consumer prices are higher. And a lot of the things that are in Build Back Better are kind of like, oh, yeah, I'm for that. But like that has nothing to do with what's happening for me right now. So I do think that Democrats need to, to the extent they are going to run on that, they need to kind of work with it a bit, maybe add some stuff. And some of it may just be messaging to kind of show how it is relevant for right now. Having said that, it makes perfect sense because you need to run on reality. What do you want to do? Why do you want more seats? You know, it kind of, it does, I mean, a lot of people who are very frustrated right now have this thing of saying, oh, you know, we gave you 50 seats and you didn't get anything done. Now you want more seats, blah, blah. I mean, I get it. It's frustrating, but it's, it's virtually impossible to pass big legislation with 50 votes. It just is. And so you, you, you know, there's a lot of stuff. Oh, don't mention Trump. You got to change blah, blah. You can be coherent and strong if you run on what you want to do and how you will be able to do it and build back better or some form of it is what they want to do, is what Democrats want to do. It's popular. And what do they need to do it? They need more seats in the Senate. And in messaging that, they wouldn't be restricted to the same parameters that have kind of you know, contributed to the crafting of Build Back Better as this huge omnibus, which left a lot of people not really knowing what's in it, because this is just a messaging game. So and I think what you said about, you know, the pandemic and people's lives definitely plays in. And I think it would be really easy to recalibrate that, you know, for instance, take out the the universal pre-care stuff and the child care stuff and the child tax credit, bundle that into a we know families with children are having it really hard right now. Here's how we would address that, you know, and yep. that's all stuff that was in Build Back Better. But I don't think no, you know, normal people really know that. So just take that out, Silo. There, that's your childcare plan. You know, take out the climate stuff. Here's what we want to do on climate. They already have all the planks written. And to your point about how hard it is to pass things with 50 people. They came within two votes, you know, they came excruciatingly close to this huge slate of progressive ideas and proposals. So, you know, it's not all they they really can say we only need a few more people mm-hmm. and look at all this different stuff we would do. Yeah. So even though the reality is if they get a few more senators, you know, they're going to have to bundle it all back up into reconciliation. Yeah, packages I mean, they, again, can, they can they can. You know, if they have the votes, they have the votes. And and I think, you know, one of the I think one of the lessons that is important for Democrats to sort of internalize about Build Back Better is that a lot of it ended up being, you know, people talk a lot about, oh, like, oh it was a reconciliation bill for a long time or the three point five trillion dollar bill. All these all these all these packagings that are either irrelevant or sound bad mm-hmm, to, to many mm-hmm. people. But the other thing is, is that it ended up in many ways being presented, being discussed in a way that is very internal to the Democratic Party and particularly activists and politi- you know, political people within the Democratic Party. And that was that it's transformative. It's the transformative thing. And a lot about the price tag was basically about a longstanding intra-democratic argument about spending. You know, do you need pay fors? Do you need to worry about deficits? Do you know, are we still kind of on, you know, Clinton neoliberal thinking and triangulation and all this kind of stuff? And for many Democrats, for very understandable reasons, it became a big deal that it was expensive. 
it wasn't just that it was okay that it was expensive. It was good that it was, that was one of the selling points is how expensive it was. Because that meant that in that intra-democratic context, we're done with the Clinton stuff. We're not kind of, uh, you, you know, pinching pennies and trying to do work requirements and means testing and all and worry about, you know, kind of half of our politics is deficit reduction. We're going to go big and we're going to transform and all this kind of stuff. Now, that has a lot, you know, it's a complicated argument among Democrats, but there's a lot of logic to that in the sort of the evolving multi-decade conversation uh, that Democrats have had really over the last 25 years about Clintonism and what comes after Clintonism, basically, maybe also what comes after Obama. But to most, to, to people who are not plugged into that conversation, when you say it's going to be, it's going to transform the country. Now, Republicans often kind of say like, oh, what are you going to do? Turn us into socialism or turn us into Antifa? You know, there's that kind of stuff. But there's other people who are just like, can we just have lower, you know, drug costs? Or, or can we, can we, can I get more money to raise my kids? What, what is transform? What is like, that's just irrelevant to most people, right? Or many people. And the idea that it is a good thing precisely because it costs so much, that seems weird outside of that kind of intra-democratic debate. So I think, and again, I understand, I even agree with a lot of the logic in that in that sort of intra-democratic conversation. But I think it's important for Democrats to absorb that a lot of that is just, you know, um, either damaging or just incomprehensible to a lot of people. Yeah, I think that's the biggest thing is just normal people don't know how much legislation costs ever. So the intense focus on the price tag of this bill, I think if you're someone who's just coming to that conversation kind of fresh, you're like, wow, this is really expensive. This is a lot of money. And it makes sense to really quibble over what it's being spent on. And then two days later, you know, you'll have the the Pentagon reauthorization bill, which is super expensive as well. But that doesn't get talked about because as you say, it's not really a point of intra-party fighting, which is what's going to get reported on, and which was the biggest movement on the legislation for months. I mean, that's the only thing people really had to write about. So I think that's totally right. And in fairness to journalists and in criticism of Democrats, it's not just that, that reporters kind of kept saying how expensive it was. Democrats were saying how expensive mm-hmm. it was because in that conversation amongst themselves, that was the selling point. We are throwing off the shackles of Clintonism. We are going to spend a ton of money because we're not afraid of spending a ton of money and because we need to spend a ton of money. But again, outside of that intra-democratic conversation, I think people either were kind of like, wait, it's just either a negative or just kind of like my big thing right now in this country is not to spend a lot of money. If if it's if we need to spend it on something, okay. But like it's just you know it's it's just some myopia that Democrats had this this year, and I don't think that was. At the end of the day, you had two Democrats who wanted to sabotage the thing, but that tendency, that focus, did not help. I also wonder whenever they kind of regroup and do this again, whether it be with you know post midterms or if they try it again this term. I wonder if there's value in even though the bill will be very comprehensive and include a lot of stuff. I wonder if it just makes sense to kind of name it and market it off whatever's most popular that you have inside of it. Because I think the problem with 
build back better. First of all, reporters didn't like using the cutesy name and it didn't doesn't really mean anything. It doesn't convey anything. At least mm-hmm. with the the COVID relief thing, you could call it that, which makes sense to people. Or its real name, I think, was like American Jobs and Family. So at least you got kind of a sense of what it was right. for. Right. I wonder right. if this time, even if it's, say, Build Back Better with the components that we, we know it to have, I wonder if you just you market it as a you know, families and child care bill or a climate bill or just something that's easier for people to get their heads around and less amorphous and then figure out later how to market the other pieces of it that don't, you know, kind of fit the heading. No, I look, it's, it's, <laughs> it is, it is obvious in every other concept, in every other context that a label, a slogan is not a description, right? It's not, it's not a laundry list. Why would it ever be a laundry list? You say something that captures an element of it and gets people inspired. And and that is, you know, again, there's a lot, there's a lot that went into things that went badly this year, but this is part of it. And so hopefully that's some lessons learned. Exactly. All right. So uh, remember that the Josh Marshall podcast brought to you by Grady's Cold Brew Ice Coffee. You can get 25% off at Grady'sColdBrew.com with promo code TPM. All right. See you next That's week. That's it. Later. The Josh Marshall Podcast is hosted by me, TPM reporter Kate Riga, and TPM founder, editor-in-chief Josh Marshall. The show is produced by Jackie Wilhelm. Thanks to Why Not Jansfeld for our podcast theme song, and thanks to all our TPM members who make this possible. Rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and subscribe wherever you listen. 